You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning, I don't know how many of you read a physical newspaper anymore. Uh, let's assume that you're reading a newspaper or maybe uh, when you get your morning coffee, you pull out your phone or you pull up in your iPad and you start looking at the news, right? You start going to that news website that you like to go to and you're just reading the headlines. Well, you and I already know what those headlines are going to be tomorrow. It's going to be bad news, right? I mean, Rarely ever, ever does good news make the front page. But I want to give you some headlines here just, just to imagine if, if we looked in the news tomorrow or heard a podcast or listened to the news on the radio, maybe, maybe these headlines is what we, what we would hear. And if we did, what, what would run through our hearts if we heard these kinds of headlines? I, these headlines I pulled out of a book that our deacons walked through. It's been about 10 months ago called uh, Old Paths, New Powers, a book on prayer written by Daniel Henderson. It's a book I just keep finding myself going back to and going back to. And I, I pulled these right out of his book. He's got a chapter in there about spiritual renewal. So let's imagine this is what you hear in the news tomorrow. Churches across America grow rapidly, and leaders cannot explain why. In Miami, five rabbis leave their synagogues for a church, for a Christian church, after a dramatic conversion. Minneapolis, Dozens of Islamic leaders renounced their faith to join Christian movement. Orange County, California, local Buddhist priests cause a stir by declaring that Jesus Christ is God. Salt Lake City, Utah, Mormon leaders discard extra biblical documents and dramatic shift of core beliefs. And then Time Magazine, leading atheists embrace the evidence of Jesus' resurrection and offer public apologies to all Christians. Can you imagine that happening? I know that's all kind of make-believe, but here's the question. When I read those things, is there something in your heart that says, yeah, it sounds great, but yeah, that'll never happen. Let me tell you what that is. That's pessimism. In our world right now, and where we are, and what we're dealing with as a culture, what we're dealing with as a church, what you're dealing with as a Christian on your job side, if you're not very careful, this heaviness of pessimism will creep in. And here's what it sounds like. Well, yeah, I know that God did that in the past. He's not going to do that now. As if God somehow has changed. As if he's no longer powerful. As if he's not willing and able to bring about those kinds of shifts in our public and our culture. You see, the danger for a Christ follower is that pessimism, negativity, in response to what you've experienced as a person who's come from death and the life, for a person who has, who has responded to the gospel, been changed from the inside out, you are a brand new creation, brand new, and that you have God living in you. You've got to understand that pessimism and negativity is really not part of who you are now as a Christ follower. And what happens in Nineveh? Quite frankly, when we read it, it's like, well, yeah, that happened in Nineveh, but 
Could that ever happen? Well, no, of course not. That could never happen. That's pessimism. And that's negativity. Quite frankly, there are a lot of people right now who say they're Christ followers who are absolutely given to that kind of thinking. Well, what about, what about Nineveh? Let's imagine for a moment that, that Nineveh had a newspaper. Probably didn't, but for the sake of the illustration, let's, let's try to imagine that. What would have been on the front page of the newspaper of Nineveh the day after Jonah arrived? Maybe it would sound something like this. The entire city is shaken to the core by the message from God delivered by a guy named Jonah. People across the city are calling out to God, mourning their sin. Even the king has issued a decree that all will join in the movement to seek forgiveness from God. Now, how did we get there? Because you know where we've been up to this point, right? We've, got, we've had Jonah just saying no to God and getting on a ship to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away, and in Jonah's mind from the presence of God, well, that didn't work out. He gets on this ship. He's asleep. God hurls a storm upon the Mediterranean. That storm had as its goal to correct Jonah. Jonah could have corrected course even while on the deck of the ship, but he didn't. We find no evidence of Jonah calling out to God. We find no evidence of, of Jonah praying. What we do find evidence of is pagan mariners who had all kinds of gods that they worshipped actually calling out to Jehovah God while God's man is silent. They throw him overboard, and I'm thinking that maybe as he's falling over the edge of the ship, I'm hoping that at that point he begins to pray, but we know when he hit the water, reality hit in. Reality set in. And as he's sinking to the bottom of the Mediterranean, and he finds himself in the belly of a fish. We find last week that, that Jonah is calling out in praise and worship to God who delivered him from death, even while in the belly of the fish. And then that fish spits Jonah back up on dry land. And I'm imagining that that fish spit him up on dry land, probably somewhere near the port where he left originally. And now Jonah has a second chance. Nineveh rising in power. Idolatry is their religion. They do not know Jehovah God, or if they do, they could care less. Some Hebrew guy rolling up in the Nineveh to proclaim some message should not have any impact at all on a city so big, so large, and so given to idolatry. But what's going to happen in Nineveh, and I've got to clarify this right from the very beginning, it's not what we as Christian people understand to be revival. I've heard this text proclaimed that way, and I don't believe that fits at all. Let me explain. When I was a kid growing up, the church that my mom and dad still attend, we would have, at times, four revival services a year. Now, let me explain that. For those of you who maybe are new to the church, a, a revival service or services was a, a series of services. And for the church I grew up in, that was Sunday to Sunday. Yeah, Sunday night to Sunday night. Every night during the week. Now, as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, I wasn't all that thrilled when the pastor made the announcement weeks in advance that we were getting ready to move into revival. Now, the whole idea of revival was the idea that the church had kind of fallen asleep, that the, the people who claim to know Jesus have kind of, have kind of 
gotten, I don't know, kind of calm or quiet or asleep in their walk with Jesus. And so the idea of revival is the idea that we're going to be revived, woken up, brought back to that place of, of, of renewment and walking with Jesus, being renewed in our walk with Him. And as a result, that turns into a, a focus on evangelism and a focus on outreach and a focus on people's lives being changed. That was the idea of revival. But this, what's happening in Nineveh, Nineveh is not a revival. The reason it's not a revival is because the idea of revival means that you were alive at some point and you went back to sleep. Nineveh's dead as it can be. Nineveh is spiritually, morally dead. They do not believe in Jehovah God. They've got their own gods that they believe in, but not only that, Nineveh is given all kinds of evil. I explained it to you a few weeks ago that they are ruthless, they are killers, they are terrorists, and they were proud of all that they were doing. So this is not renewal, but what God or not revival, but what God is going to do here is God is going to unleash some power in this city that is unlike anything that we can see anywhere else in Scripture. If you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember what happened there? They were burnt to the ground. Here, something amazing is going to happen. Something incredible is going to happen. And we're going to look at it and we're going to try to understand what exactly is happening in this city. Was it because Jonah was a great speaker, a great preacher? It's because Jonah had this great strategy when he went into Nineveh. Remember, Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh, and he still doesn't want to go. One of the most disturbing things about Jonah's prayer is the lack of his repentance in that prayer. God, I'm sorry that I rejected you. God, I'm sorry that I was disobedient. But okay, I'm going to go in obedience. He goes, he, he surrenders to God's will, but he's not going because he loves the Ninevites. He's not going because he believes they need a message from God. He's going because God told him to, and that's it. And he doesn't want to end up back in the belly of a fish. It's amazing what a storm and a fish can do with aligning your heart to God's will. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now notice how in Jonah 3, verse, uh, verse 1, if you go back to chapter 1, and you look at that initial call of God upon Jonah's life, you're going to see a whole lot of similarity here. God is repeating himself. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So God speaks to Jonah. After Jonah is spit out of the fish, the fish vomits Jonah back out on the dry land. And again, I don't think it was too far from where he left to go to Tarshish. I think more than likely, although the text doesn't tell us exactly, I'm thinking that, that Jonah probably needed some time to kind of gather himself. I mean, it's not like he was just spit out of the fish and he's still you know, just ready to go all of a sudden. I think he's probably having to recuperate a little bit. Maybe a day, two days goes by, but God begins to speak. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Arise, go 550 miles to the northeast of where you are. You are going to go and you're going to proclaim a message that I will give you. Now, I want to tell you that in that moment of God speaking to Jonah, we, we see something that God does often in our lives. Maybe you've been seeking God's will for your life, right? What, what does God want me to do? What's my purpose? Why am I here? And oftentimes when we're seeking God's will, what we'll do is we'll say, God, I want you to paint the whole picture for me. I want you to tell me all the details. I want you to fill in all the spots. I don't want to have any question as to what you're asking me to do. But folks, I'm going to tell you, God rarely ever does that. Rarely ever does he do it. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, Rarely does he do it. He said to Abraham, Abraham, get up. I want you to go to a land 
that I will show you. God didn't tell him to go east or west or north or south. He says, just arise and go. And Abraham did. We find that all through Scripture. Here we see God telling Jonah, yet again, Jonah, you're going to go to Nineveh, and I've got a message for you. I'm not going to tell you what that message is yet. So, so Jonah, you're just going to have to step out in faith. You're going to have to trust me on this because you didn't trust me the first time. And, you know, again, a storm and a, and a belly of a fish have a way of aligning us up with God. He's aligned with God. And guess what Jonah does? Look at verse 3. So Jonah arose. No hesitation. No questioning. No listen, not looking for a boat to head to Tarshish. He goes. So he arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Now, when you get into commentaries, they, they tell you a lot of different things about this three days, and there's a, I don't know why there's so much controversy about this or shouldn't be. Some say, well, it was, it was a three-day trip. In other words, Jonah was going to arrive in Nineveh, then he's going to preach, and then he's going to leave, and it's like that's what the three days were referring to. But I think the plain reading of the text says that this city was so big that it would take you three days to get across it. That's not completely outlandish, especially in these days. They were large cities. This is a large, powerful, influential city. And remember, all the communities and all the cities around it were scared to death of Assyria and Nineveh. They knew what they could do. They knew the horror and the killing and the pain that they could inflict. Jonah would have had a lot of reasons to throw at God to not go, but he arises and he goes. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Somewhere between the shoreline and his arrival at Nineveh, God gives Jonah the message to preach. And the message that he's going to preach, in your English translation, I think we've got about, I don't know, nine words there. In the Hebrew language, it's five words. Just five words. And he says to Jonah, now, Jonah, here's the message you're going to go proclaim. And the message is that you're going to walk in the city and you're going to tell these people that in 40 days, I'm going to overthrow them. That word overthrow can, can have a couple of different meanings depending on the context. On the one hand, it can mean that I'm going to destroy the city. I'm going to judge the city. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. Absolutely, overthrow can mean that. But it can also mean that the cities can be restored. It can be rejuvenated. So in this moment, God is saying both. God is saying, I'm going to destroy the city. If you do not repent, if you do not turn away from your evil, if you do not relent from what you're doing, then I'm going to destroy the city. But if you turn, if you turn, I will relent. I will, I will not destroy it. So in these 11 Hebrew words, Jonah walks into this city. It would be like God calling you to go to Los Angeles or Vegas. You get off the plane. God's giving you a sermon to preach, and you go down on the street corner right in the middle of Vegas, and you proclaim the message. I wonder, wonder if pessimism would creep in right there. Just being honest, they probably would with me. Okay, guys, so I'm going to go to Vegas. I'm going to go out one of the big, I've never been to Vegas, so I don't know all the hotel names, but I'm going to go on one of the busiest street corners, and I'm, I'm going to proclaim this message. I can tell you right now, I'm probably a little pessimistic about that. I'd probably have some doubts about that. Matter of fact, I might consider a ship to Tarshish. Jonah goes, now, Jonah's not going because he loves Nineveh. Jonah's not going because he can't wait to see if they'll turn. 
Jonah's going because he doesn't want to end up back in the situation he was in before. Notice the response, verse 5. A five-word sermon, five Hebrew words, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest then to the least of them. That's not what's expected here by Jonah. Certainly not Jonah. And if, and if we're reading this text without really knowing where the end's going, of course we do. This is a shocking verse. Verse 5 and the verses after that is a shocking verse. That a, that, a, that a man who's not known to Nineveh at all, who represents Jehovah God and Jewish people, walks into a pagan city, proclaims a message of five words, and how do they respond? Well, they believed God. Now, i gotta, I got to give you context on that. Does this mean that the city immediately put their faith in God? No, it does not. It does mean that probably some of them did. But what it means is that they believed that God would do exactly what he said he would do, that God would destroy that city in 40 days if they didn't turn. So they believed the message of the prophet that God would destroy them. Get this, a God that they didn't even worship, a God that they didn't even know really well, a God that was not part of their pantheon of gods. They listened to Jonah, and they believed. And they began to fast. And they began to put on sackcloth. What does that mean? Well, not just within the Jewish religion, Jewish faith, but even in other parts of the world, other belief systems, sackcloth was this rough, ugly, dirty, itchy cloth that you would wrap around your body. And you would bow on your face before your gods or Jehovah God, and you would mourn and you would be brokenhearted over the fact that you've done something wrong. The city, this city that was taking people captive and killing them in the streets, this city who would, would flay, in other words, skin people alive, these people who cared nothing for human life, uh, all they cared for was power and money and control and building a kingdom, these people are now fasting, mourning, repenting, turning from their evil. Notice verse 6. Word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So now the, the word that, that, that Jonah is proclaiming has made its way all the way to the king. Now, Jonah may have never had access to the king unless God provided that. Remember, Jonah's only one day into this, only one day into proclaiming the message. And the next thing you know, it's spreading through the city, made it all the way to the king. And what does the king do? What should have happened is the king said, take this guy, take this Hebrew, and throw him out of the city. Take this Hebrew and cut his head off. Take this Hebrew and punish him and then put him to death in the streets. That's what should have happened. But the king hears the word. What's the word? Five words in Hebrew, and that is, in 40 days, God's going to destroy the city. He's going to overthrow it. Guess what the king does? The king says, I believe that message. I believe that Jonah's God, Jehovah God, is going to do that. And what does he do? He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth, and he sits down in a pile of ashes, which is symbolic of the reality that everything this king has, everything in this kingdom, all of his power, all of his ability, all of his money is worthless, just like the pile of ashes that he's sitting in. All of that, because this reluctant missionary Jonah proclaimed a message that he didn't really even want to proclaim. 
It's incredible. Verse 7, And he issued a, a proclamation and published through the Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The people, in response to the message, had begun a fast because of their mourning and their brokenness for the evil that they were doing and the cause that they had brought was going to bring judgment on them. They put on sackcloth, but the king ups the bar. He, he increases the level of mourning. And he says, not only are we going to abstain from food, but we're going to abstain from drink. And not only are we going to do it by our animals, we're not even going to feed or give water to our animals, and we're even going to put sackcloth on our animals, on our livestock. That is, well, it's amazing. Matter of fact, that's a very unique thing in all of Scripture that, that they're doing this. And he says, let everyone turn from his evil way. Wow, king, wasn't you the guy that just a few weeks ago was telling us to overtake this city? Hey, hey, king of Nineveh, not king of Assyria, two different kings, but this is the king over Nineveh. He's directing his people to do evil deeds. The people around Nineveh knew what they were capable of. And now word is spreading throughout the region that this king is now, well, bowing to God, the God of the Hebrews. The whole city is mourning. We, we've noticed that no one else is being killed in the street. We noticed that all of a sudden the, the public executions had stopped. What's going on in Nineveh? Well, a reluctant missionary went and proclaimed a message he didn't want to proclaim. And God's doing something amazing. This really messes with our pessimism, does it not? Because we know, we know that God never changes. We know that the king, the creator of this universe, he does not change. That who he was in Nineveh is who he is today. That there's no change in his power, no change in his ability, no change. So this really messes with this idea of, of pessimism that somehow God no longer is willing or no longer can do this kind of thing. And make no mistake about it, Nineveh is far, far, far from God. I would like to say to you that this renewal in and Nineveh stuck. I would like to tell you that years later, that God is working there powerfully. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Turn over a couple of books. You've got Jonah, you've got Micah, and then you've got a book, Nahum. Now, you may have never read Nahum. It's kind of a, well, it's a little bit hard to read when you read it, but let me, let me give you the, the background on, on Nahum. So Nahum is yet another person that God sends to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah. So the book of Nahum is another message to that same city. But the message that Nahum is going to communicate to Nineveh is vastly different than the one that Jonah was called. It's a whole lot more words than just five Hebrew words. And the reason that Nahum has been sent there is because while there was a move of God during Jonah's day, as time goes on, they revert back to their old ways. Not only do they revert back to their old ways, but as Assyria grows in power with Nineveh as its capital, more and more and more people begin to die. More and more atrocities begin to happen. 
And although there was a move of God in Jonah's day, by the time we get to Nahum 150 years later, I want you to hear what God says to this city, Nahum chapter 3. So we have Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Listen to chapter 3. I'll just read a few verses here. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charged in flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with their charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Get that. Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Go back to Jonah. Now, the reason that I bring you this bad news is because I want you to see that when Jonah was there and he was preaching the message that God gave him, God was extending grace to the city that we all know and that Jonah even knew did not deserve it. That's what grace is. And the, and the wrestle that Jonah had with himself is Jonah knew what this city had been doing to his own people. He knew that. But yet God was choosing to extend grace and mercy to a group of people who didn't deserve it. So Jonah, although he is complicit in God's command, he's not happy about it, and God uses it. And as we will see next week in chapter 4, we will see the struggle that Jonah has with God's grace and love going to a group of people he didn't believe deserved it. But God extended grace here. The only problem is, is the people turn back to evil. And this gets me to the first point I want to bring out of everything that we've seen with Jonah's life, and especially chapter 3, is this first thing I really want you to get is God is not obligated to extend grace. If, if he was obligated, then it wouldn't be grace. You see, there is a place, friend, that you can go in your lostness that is beyond his grace. Now, how could that be? Because Paul says, you know, whatever sin you've done, grace abounds even more. That is true. But listen, when you continually reject God's pleas of mercy in your life, and I'm talking to every person online and in this building who are lost, the guy I was just pleading with in between the services. God is extending grace, and God is drawing him to the cross. God is drawing him to salvation, and he's rejecting it. Maybe you're rejecting it, but you've got to understand that there is a point to which God will say to you, if you continue to reject his grace, God will say to you, I'm going to give you over to yourself. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, we see that phrase often. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, it says there that God gave them up. In the King James, it says, a reprobate mind. What does that mean? It means that you keep running into evil. You keep running towards sin. You keep rejecting God's love and God's grace. There comes a point where God says, have at it. Have at it. And God pulls back. Nineveh experienced the grace of God. But over time, they wasted it. Over time... It never took hold of the sea. Over time, they turned back to their own evil way. And what do we find in Nahum? We find God saying, 
Who is going to mourn for Nineveh? What happened to Nineveh has been wasted, and who will mourn for her now? And God will absolutely, positively rain down judgment upon this very city, and not only them, the Assyrians as well. You see, God doesn't owe us anything. He has provided everything we need to express faith in Him. We don't need anything. Listen, if you're looking for a miracle, if, if folks online, if you're looking for a miracle, you're hearing about some statue crying blood, or you're hearing about some, some move of something down in some jungle, and you're going on YouTube and you're trying to find it because you're thinking that if I can find that one thing, just one more thing, then I will finally put my faith in Jesus. You won't. You know why? Because you're walking by the very thing that God has given you to say this is all you need to believe in. Let me tell you what the people in Nineveh are going to say. Turn over to Matthew 12. We, we talked about this text last week. I want to point it out to you again because I didn't read all of it. Matthew 12. So God is not obligated to keep extending grace to people who are going to reject it over and over again. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is dealing with scribes and Pharisees, and they're, they're asking to see another sign. Now, Jesus has already performed sign after sign after sign, miracle after miracle. But yet the Pharisees and the religious rulers are saying, no, 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 we need to see something else. Perform a trick for us, Jesus, and, and then maybe we'll believe. They have no intention of believing. Jesus knows that. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the man, son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what Jesus says. Everything that's been done, and at that point, it's going to be done. Jesus says that there's going to be a time where he was going to hang on a cross, be placed into a grave, and resurrect three days later. That's what he's predicting right here. And he says, that's all that's ever going to be needed to be done. No other miracles, no other signs, no other great works. Everything is going to be complete. When Jesus resurrects and sends back to the Father, all has been done that will ever need to be done for you to put your faith in Jesus. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Wow, that's a powerful word. Here's what Jesus says. He says, there's going to be a judgment. And at that judgment, there's going to be some men from Nineveh. And these Pharisees and scribes who are very religious but will not accept Jesus as Messiah, no matter what he does. Even after he resurrects, they're not going to accept him. He knows that. And when these scribes and Pharisees are standing before Jesus on this day of judgment, there's going to be some men who stand up over here. And guess who they are? They were men who put their faith in God in Nineveh. And they're going to say, hey, scribes and Pharisees, in our day we had Jonah, this guy we didn't know, the God that he represented we didn't know. He came into our city and he preached a message of five words. And it broke our hearts. And we repented and we turned. So Pharisees, scribes, who knew the Old Testament up one side and down the other, who had Jesus right in front of them, doing miracles, raising people back to life, healing the lame, giving the sight, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to those who were deaf, teaching like no one had ever taught. He was right before you. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophets and all that they said about Messiah, and yet you rejected him. Pharisees and scribes, hear from the men of Nineveh. You have no excuse, but let me also extend that to us today. 
you have no excuse. The men of Nineveh rise up and they point out the fact that what we have before us, the whole counsel of God's word, the complete revelation of Jesus Christ, the perfect revelation of God, the gospel, the reality that Jesus walked out of a tomb alive, you have all you need. If you reject it, you reject it. God is not obligated to come back and give you a second, a third, a fourth chance. He often does out of his good grace and his good patience. With Jonah, he comes back and gives Jonah not just two chances. He gives Jonah multiple chances. Jonah running to Tarshish. God hurls a storm upon him to get his attention. Jonah rejects it. Jonah never calls out to God. They throw him over the ship into the water. He's sinking into the water. He begins to call out to God. God answers, swallows him with a fish. Listen. Jonah had many chances, and God was gracious and kind and patient. But there is a place that you can go, lost friend, where God says, okay, you're going to run that direction? Then have at it. God will say, just like he says to Paul, or through Paul in Romans 1, if they're going to suppress the truth, they're going to run headlong into sin, and they're going to ignore what I've put before them, then have at it. Second thing I want you to see out of Jonah's life and what he's experiencing here in chapter 3 is, is our excitement to share God's message should match God's love for people. Our desire to share the message should match the love that God has for people. What do I mean by that? Well, Jonah is in Nineveh in spite of himself. Jonah's there to share a message that he's not even really confident in. As a matter of fact, we'll find out in chapter 4 that the message he's sharing, he's wishing those people had never responded to. He fully, he's fully convinced that when he goes in the city, everybody's going to reject it. You see, Jonah, not only was he pessimistic, but, but Jonah was hoping that God's judgment would fall. So Jonah was not excited about the message. He was not excited about the people he had been called to reach. I wonder if Jonah didn't keep the message kind of intentionally short on his own. I wonder if Jonah wasn't really going that hard and that fast at Nineveh because he really didn't want to see them turn. And to his surprise and to our surprise, the people respond. They repent. Some of them put their faith in God. But certainly Nineveh, knows who God is. Jonah didn't expect this response. He wasn't excited about the message. I wonder, I wonder if times in our walk with Jesus, now I'm talking to believers, people who've come to, from darkness into light, I wonder how excited we are to tell other people about Jesus. Now remember, just like Jonah, we've been spared, we've been blessed, we've been provided for We've been cared for. We've, God has answered prayers for us. He's done all kinds of work in our lives. Some we recognize, some we don't even know about. And God has done that consistently over and over again. And that's been a work of his grace in our life. And then God says to us, now I want you to go tell other people about what I've done for you because there's a lost and dying world that needs to know there's hope, especially now in the world we're living in today. And there is a general lack of excitement among the Western church in America about telling other people about this love and grace that we found. How do I know that? Any statistic you want to look at, any, any denomination that you want to look at that's preaching the gospel, what you will find is exactly the same thing. 
very, very, very low numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus. Is that because God has somehow no longer loves people? Of course not. Is it somehow because God's power is lacking? No. Is it because God doesn't want to change people's lives? No. It's because the people who've experienced God's grace, the people who, who are the, the mouthpiece of God, of the great commission work that we've been called to, have decided either A, they don't deserve it, or B, I'm not excited about it, or C, I'm just too busy with other things. I don't know. It could be any of those or all three of them. Maybe the pessimism has crept into our understanding of the gospel. Maybe our idea of the gospel is our four no more. Our family, we're all good. We have our tickets to heaven. Yay. The rest of the world, well, they're in darkness and there's not much hope for them. But if Jesus is the hope of the world, and he is, and he's the light of the world, and he is, and that light lives in you, then you're to do something with that light. Jesus said, don't cover that up. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't, don't hide it under a basket. That's not who you are anymore. Are we as excited about God's message as God is in his love for people? I mean, think about Nineveh. Think about all that God has done to make sure Jonah ends up in Nineveh. Chased him out onto the Mediterranean on a boat to Tarshish. Hurls a storm upon some poor old mariners who, who caught, were caught up in this mess. It wasn't their fault. They get caught up in this mess. They, they have to make a decision to throw Jonah overboard. God directs a fish to swallow this guy and hold him for three days, only to spit him back up on the shore, and God said, go to Nineveh. God did all that. Why? Because he had a message for Nineveh. He's got a message for Robinson County. Guess where that message is? Every one of you who put your faith in Jesus. But my goodness, my goodness, is it so quiet out there? It's awfully quiet across our Western culture. I wonder why. You think about where God's brought you from. And you look at your culture and you go, man. I work, I work with some messed up people. <laughs> I go to school with some messed up people. I go to church with some messed up people. You know what the answer to that messed upness is? Boy, that's some bad English, isn't it, Miss Wendy? Thank you. <laughs> messed upness. She would count off on somebody's paper if they used that. The answer to that is the gospel. But has our pessimism got to such a point that we don't believe that that's even possible anymore? Third thing I want you to see. You got to see this. You've probably already seen it. The power of the message comes from God, not us. The power of the message is not some flashy new program. The power of the message is not how great I can preach, which is not very good. The power of the message is not how well we can communicate all the nuances of theology. The power of the message is God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. Folks, church, don't ever get our eyes off this. One person telling another person about what Christ has done in their life and the Holy Spirit working in that to break their heart and draw them to salvation. What we need is more people willing to do it. We need less people boarding ships to Tarshish and we need more people going to Nineveh. And we've already got the message. We've already got it. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. 
You've got the message. You've heard it. You've heard it hundreds of times. You've heard it. And as we talked about drawing circles and, and listing out creation, fall, and rescue. We've, we've talked about it a hundred different ways. But what it really comes down to, are we going to be obedient with the message? Are we going to run to Tarshish or are we going to go to Nineveh? Nineveh being Robinson County. You're running to it every day. You're working in it every day. You got lost people all around you every day. The power of the message is not how well you articulate it. The power of the message is God working. I have, listen, there's been times where I've shared the gospel with someone, and after the fact, I think maybe this is happening. After I get done, I think of all the things I could have said. Oh, why did I think of that? Why did I think of that? And yet, in that brokenness to share the gospel where I, maybe I missed something, I'm just beating myself up, this person calls me back and says, you know, I have never had anyone explain it to me that way. Can we talk again? I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Because even in my brokenness and trying to share it, the simplest, most beautiful story, God still works. God is there. And get this, God's power can infiltrate places that you may never have access to. And that gets me to this last point under this power of the message comes from God. God's power can reach into the corridors of power. So you at home praying for our leaders, praying for our president, praying for our Congress people, praying for the Senate and the House, praying for our governor. I don't care whether you agree with them or not. You are called to pray for them. That's another message. I'll wait on that one another week. But listen, 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for your leaders. You know who Paul's leader was when he was writing that to Timothy? Nero of all people. I don't care if you agree with them or not. You're called to pray for them. And get this, when you pray for them, God's power creeps into that Oval Office or creeps into that house, creeps into that Senate, creeps into the mayor's mansion. God's power is not bounded or, or limited by walls and structures of power. You get to pray for these people. And guess what? You may not see it. You may not see it exactly the way Jonah saw it, but God is working on behalf of the prayers that you're calling out in his name. We need to get broken. We need to quit. We need to quit gossiping about what's going on and hit our knees about what's going on. And there, that power of the Holy Spirit and the power of His Word begins to creep into places we may never have access to. And trust me when I tell you, I believe that prayer is powerful and prayer changes things. If it didn't, well, I'd go back and do some electrical work. I would. The power of the message comes from God. And when powerful people come under the power of God, they can influence an entire nation of people. That's what just happened. This king hears the message, and he puts on sackcloth, and he falls on a pile of ashes, and he begins to repent. When powerful people come under the power of God, because God's people are praying, those powerful people that God has given these places of prominence to, God can turn their heart like the rivers of water. But it's not because I have power. It's not because I'm articulate. It's not because I have a degree. It's because of God's power. We share the message. God's power and the Holy Spirit does the work. So why are we not doing it? Maybe it's because pessimistic. This world has a way of just sapping the joy right out of us, right? None of us wanted to be facing Delta variant. None of us want to be facing that. And maybe when you saw where these trends were going, you just got, oh, here we go again. And there is that feeling of just, well, anger and pessimism and just like 
even fear. My God's still on the throne. Jesus is still sitting at his right hand. I'm not going to live my life in fear. I'm going to live my life on mission. Because there are young men, just like the one I just talked to, who if he doesn't put his faith in Jesus, he will spend eternity separated from a holy God. I cannot be silent. You can't be silent. We have a message. It's time to share it. Father in heaven, Father, I call upon you in this moment to do exactly that, your power in this place. I'm nothing more than just a messenger that you've given a task to that I try to live out each week, but Father, I know I have no power, but your message does. The Holy Spirit does. He's working. I saw it at the last, the end of the second service. I saw the power. I saw what you're doing in the lives of the five people I talked to at the end of that service. You're doing it now, right here in this place. You're doing it across the globe through these cameras. You're at work. Oh, Father, forgive us of our pessimism. Forgive us, Father, of of our fear when, when you are far greater than whatever we fear. Father, forgive us of, of experiencing your grace, being forgiven and set free, yet never, ever bringing that up to someone else. Father, we need revival. We need a move of your hand. Because you have not changed. We have. Father, we've gotten complacent. We're distracted. We're following other gods. So, Father, we need awakening in your people and renewal in those who are far from you. The message is clear. Your power is real. And we surrender to it right now. And whatever that looks like, as we sing this beautiful song, we surrender to it. Whatever that looks like, it's not going to be a no for us. It's not going to be getting on a ship to Tarshish. It's going to be a yes. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.